Stay inspired on the go with Springboard Zone, an inspirational podcast from internationally acclaimed executive coaches, authors and ministers, Albert and Comfort Okran. You will be inspired and challenged with strategies to consistently reach for new heights. And now, today's message by Reverend Albert Okran. Tonight on the show, I have Reverend Daniel Obamitete, a man who needs absolutely no introduction and I... I am expecting his prescriptions to include investment because the man is an investment doctor. If he doesn't talk about investment, I will raise a caveat and give him a sixth prescription. And then I also have Professor Ken Atifwa, and he must talk about human rights in his prescriptions. If he doesn't, I'll give him a sixth prescription. All right, so gentlemen, welcome to Springboard. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thanks for making time to join us. And it's, it's been a very difficult week for us at, at, at Springboard, I must say. I mean, I didn't think we could even host the show because just for the record, I mean, beyond personal friendship for several years, Daninete was the, okay, let's say the unofficial songwriter for Springboard. He was actually composing a song for the Dare to Dream theme for the year. Wow. Um, yes. Wow. And that that's the wow. commitment that he had to the vision that we have. He's traveled with us across the country. He was the first song, I mean, songwriter and singer to appear on our platform. And he kept faith every single year, as long as he was in town, to be part of this. And the, the, the groundbreaking one was 2011, when we decided to go into Africa and he composed a song for the African tour and actually traveled with us to Gambia and to Nigeria. We celebrate a man who really believed in what we're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I certainly identify with you. I've also known him for a number of years, and um, he's without compare, if you ask me, in terms of the quality of music that he brings uh, out. And, you know, when I listen to him, uh, one of his songs that I like the most is uh, I Believe. Right. The, the lyrics are so powerful, and the voice is so rich. It's one of the things we kind of understand, you know, um, it was such a big shock. It's, I'm sure I'm, I'm not the only one, but right. I guess uh, some things we will not understand on this side of heaven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you ever interact with Dan on, 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 on a, on a, on a close basis? No, no, I never right. had a privilege, but I've enjoyed him from a distance. Right. And I'm um, very sorry to hear to his past. Right. right. Deepest condolences to his family. Yeah. At this moment, I mean, they are the ones you should be thinking about the most. Because yeah. while we loved him as a friend and 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 and, and as a, a compatriot and a brother, they've lost a son, mm. a, a brother, and and at a different level. And we just can't help but but share in their pain. At this Absolutely. Point. One Absolutely. thing I would say about Dan, my favorite Daninetti um, attribute was the inspirational ability to compose on the spare of the moment. It was mm. unbelievable. Mm. This song was written in five minutes. Wow. Yes. Ten it was around. yes, Ten Around was written in five minutes. Wow. It was when he finished writing it that he now did, took time to polish it and went to the studio, worked on it with Zap. Okay. But the actual composition was done in five minutes. Five That's minutes. what happened whenever he was inspired. He could literally write in minutes. Mm. And that mm. was done for you. Wow. We've lost a real gem. Right. Right. So, Mike, you're talking about the ideal Ghana. If you had a chance to design Ghana on, on a clean slate, and, and share what your thoughts would be about how the nation should look like. What should it be? Let, let me let me just ask you, Reverend, before we even go into the prescriptions, what do you think about the idea of brainstorming about 
the form the nation should take if you had a chance to redo everything all over again. What, what do you think about the idea? I think it's a brilliant idea because it gives us the opportunity to focus on if you like recreating our nation I think at any point in time it's okay to take stock of where you are and then you know take a critical look of, at where you want to be so I think this exercise that you've put together is fantastic and I hope that you know the ideas that have come up will actually uh, see some implementation one way or the other but it's an absolutely brilliant idea to attempt to create the future and I think we, we need to know that we have the capacity uh, to do so if only we'll take the time to think through and then to really attempt defining the future the way we want it to be. Right. Prophet, are you were very excited when we asked you to be on the panel and and tell me, what was the source of your enthusiasm about this particular undertaking? What was the reason for your your positive inclination and enthusiasm? I think, um, thank you very much for the opportunity. I think it is because this platform, this idea, this conversation you've initiated um, enjoins us to reflect on our sense of nationhood, on, a, on ourselves as a people where we've been so far, and what are the possibilities for engineering a different kind of society in which some of the ills we have been contending with since the, since the dawn of our nationhood um, can be grappled with, how we can um, recreate Ghanaian society. And I think that it's an important conversation to, to engage in at the dawn of our, what is it, 60th birthday as a nation. This is our 59th year, and there couldn't be a better year. What kind of Ghana would we want to see 60 years from now? I think the kennels for that, for that society must be envisaged today. And then the mechanisms, the arrangements, the institutional you know, wherewithals, that would be vital for achieving that kind of um, society, you know, um, occasioned right now. Right. It's, Let me start it's with an you. urgent call. Thank you very much, sir. I, I, we'll come back to this. And, and just for the benefit of all of us listening out there who have been asking us not to stop, I can tell you that it's a conversation that will continue. This is the preliminary discussion. <coughs> We're going to collate the thoughts, juxtapose them against some research that we've stumbled upon on this same theme or similar themes and then package it and re-present it for the third quarter or the, or the, fourth, the fourth quarter of the year as we explore how we can elevate our discourse to a higher level, especially in the electioneering period. But let's start with um, you, Reverend Daniel Obama. What would be your first prescription if we came to you and, and asked for your thoughts about a different Ghana, a new Ghana, your ideal Ghana, what would be the first prescription? Okay, so when, when I thought about it, my mind went to the second chapter of my first book, right. uh, 31 Days to Financial Independence. The title is Make a Mental Shift. So uh, the first prescription that I have put down, which I would want to share now, is the fact that I believe that we need a mental and attitude shift. And I'll break it down, if you would allow me, in a number of ways. Right. So the first shift has to do with making a mental shift from consumption to investment. You promised my, the listeners that they will hear about investment. <laughs> For the record, it is the commandment number one. And I'm not disappointed at all. Do you know, Albert, that currently, according to some research that was done, 
out of 100 Ghanaians that reach the age of 60, two are able to retire comfortably, 23 will have to still be working, and then the remaining 75 have to depend on SNED, friends, uh, relatives, and so on and so forth. And that brings out the fact that we need for Ghanaians to make a change from consuming all the resources that come to them. Run the numbers by me again. One thing I know about our listeners is that they write down these statistics. Okay. So okay. Two are able to retire comfortably. Comfortably. 23 have, have to keep, to on, keep working, on working, even though, even though they've, they've hit the retirement exactly. age. And the remaining 75. They have to depend on charity, on SNED, on friends, you know, on, 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 on the kindness of people. And, and that is not uh, an ennobling thought at all. And it's coming from the fact that we have this mindset of consuming everything that comes our way. You know, there's this talk about poverty. And one of the ways that we can deal with poverty, not just in retirement, is by making that mental shift. Another benefit of making this mental shift from consumption to investment is that we can create pools of capital that would help in pushing economic uh, development. You know, so I believe it's one of the critical things that we need to do to, to make that mental um, shift from consumption to investment. The other thing I put under the mental shift is to you know shift from what I call his job to my job. That is to say that people need to be responsible. Uh, isn't it strange that sometimes you get people uh, in their neighborhood complain that the government is not doing anything about, uh, you know, sanitation when they can do something in their, um, you know, locality. They can refrain from, you know, just throwing waste indiscriminately and so on and so forth. I think there's that wrong notion that it is someone's job to do this or to do that. And I think it's one of the things that's helping Ghana. And I believe that if we can have that change in mindset that, look, it's, it's not an issue of his job, it's not the employer's job, it's not the government's job, it's my job. I can do something about it. I think that would um, also be good. And another aspect of the mental shift I'm talking, I want to talk about is the approach to work. Right. Uh, you find that, um, you know, in a number of places, people want to, um, if I can put it this way, be paid even before they work. Right. Um, you have, you've, you've been employed to get something done, but you want to get a reward even before you start the work. So I'll tell you a very funny story. <laughs> we were interviewing somebody for a position okay. not too long ago, and the person kept justifying why they needed a particular, a particular amount as salary. And we said to him, the person is, okay, very simple. We have a simple task that is a, a part of what you will be doing when you enter the organization. So to show what you can do, let's also give you that assignment and try your hands at it before you come. And he was like, but I haven't gotten a job yet. Why, <laughs> why should I Why should I do some of the work? And we said, you haven't gotten a job yet, and yet you are so so clear in your mm-hmm. mind about what you deserve. Yeah. There seems to be a sense of entitlement. Exactly, when it exactly, exactly. And, and right. I think we, we, we need to have uh, that shift. Sometimes uh, young people, for instance, need to learn how to accept internship where they, they might not be paid, uh, but they will get the kind of knowledge and experience that will help them uh, further in their career. But people just think, I need the money here and now. 
a mental and attitudinal shift. I can tell you this: the three sub teams alone can take up the whole shoe. Just, just, just so you know <laughs> what the, the honest nest that you have opened. So Reverend Ogwami's first thought is a mental and attitudinal shift: one from consumption to investment, two from his job to my job, or or their job to my job, and then the third one, uh, the approach to work. Um, in other words, the entitlement mentality. Let me take Ken Atifa's first prescription and let's see how we juxtapose one against the other. Ken, let's start with yours. What will be your first... Um let, let, let me articulate, if you permit me, my vision of that new Ghana, that ideal Ghana. Right. Um, it's, it's a bit loaded, but it's a united Ghana. It's a united Ghana, well governed for the public good by freely and transparently elected leaders who are themselves imbued with high integrity, who are patriotic to the core and accountable and responsive to a healthy, well-educated and disciplined citizenry. And the citizenry also respect the rule of law and promotes and protects the national interest and resists and reports corruption and administrative injustice. Now, no, from hold this... On, hold on, hold on. <laughs> really? Yes. I mean, you just... And it's attainable. No, you, you, I must pause and catch my breath because you just rattled it from beginning to end. Is this something you've been thinking about for years? I've been thinking about for a very long time. At least since 1998 when I returned from my 14-year sojourn in Canada. And I came to the painful conclusion after the first three years, and especially during my time at the National Reconciliation Commission, that this country can be saved only by aliens. This country, Ghana, can be saved only by aliens. And by aliens, of course, I don't mean those from Mars or outer space. I mean Ghanaians who are articulate, who are loyal, who are imbued of integrity, who are engaging and who are non-conformist and sincere. That's my acronym, I mean the ALIENS acronym. Articulate, loyal, integrity imbued, engaging, non-conformist and sincere. Non-conformist and sincere to a core. I'll tell you, of all the, 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 the six parts of this acronym, one of the ones that has come up a couple of times in the engagements we've had is the non-conformist. Yes. The idea that we should refuse to conform, refuse to accept what seems to have become the status quo. How strongly do you feel about that particular point? Oh, tremendously strong. Tremendously. I mean, it is our, non, it is our conformism, our... Our national pension, our tendency to conform to Sanetier, Hadier, Sanye Yeno, and Ochra Omo, Okasa Unkwan, you know, the, the, the insults we heap at those who dare to do right, who dare to be different. And in this country, 99% of the time, daring to do right puts you in direct confrontation or conflict with those who are the managers of the status quo. A lot of people stand to gain from the business as usual. And it is the, the drive to conform that keeps us impoverished emotionally, spiritually, 
economically, developmentally. We are an impoverished nation. We kill ourselves more than perhaps any other country in the world on our highways. Um, and nothing changes. And you dare not. Ghana, Nigeria, Mexico, perhaps still, the last time I checked among the top three, I mean, being the top three countries in the world where more people die on the streets than in hospitals. I mean, from, from AIDS and all of those kinds of things. We, we are such an indisciplined lot. And daring to do anything right in this country puts you in direct conflict with the powers that be. And by powers, I don't mean just politicians. I mean all of those people who stand to benefit, even where it is about forcing women to go through obnoxious widowhood rights. You would find women ardent about it and insisting that this must be done. And it is because it helps them achieve all kinds of things that perhaps you don't, we cannot discuss here. But yes, I take the the importance of not being a conformist very seriously. Right. And when we conform to, and I don't mean being disrespectful <laughs> of Ghanaians, I mean just not doing things that are not right. And a lot of things that we take for granted in this country are just not right. But we stick to them. The voice you just heard is the voice of Professor Ken. Articulating his view or his perception about the a, a different Ghana. If I try to go through the whole thing, I tell you, I'll get lost along the line. But it was evident that he had very strong thoughts about a united, well-governed country governed by democratically elected people who are accountable to the people and who understand the mandate they've been given and on and on. But he, he, he talked about having come to a conclusion that this country can only be saved by aliens. And my, my antennas went up when he mentioned aliens, but his aliens are articulate, loyal, um, they have integrity, they are engaging, they are non-conformists, and they are very sincere. And he concluded his first part of his presentation by saying that when you dare to do the right thing, it puts you in direct confrontation with the managers of the status school or people who tend to benefit from things being done as they always have been done. Well, let me come back to Reverend Dr. Obama, and I'm going to come back to you, Ken, because this is something we'd like yes, to bring so I down. Can, I can actually give you my my five things. Right. Maybe your, your, your framework your framework is, is itself the overarching picture. Let me maybe let me get a quick response from um, Reverend Obama today on this one first before I come back to you and then I'll allow you to give me your first prescription. This is just an overview. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I actually love his uh, aliens, uh, if, if I call it model. Uh, initially, I also was a bit um, uh, <laughs> concerned. <laughs> but Interestingly, I also had, he, he has written his in a very different way, but I had put down as one of the th uh, uh, things I believe must change. I wrote governance and national agenda. Right. And what I wrote was that uh, it's important for our government to be more inclusive. And, you know, um, we need to look at how we can tap capacity more than looking at colors, right? You know, because sometimes you find that um, colors count more. And if I talk about colors, I'm talking about political colors, right. affiliations. Yes, yeah, it, 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 it counts more than capacity, which 
to me is not the way to move our nation uh, forward. There's too much polarization uh, in, in, in politics, which again is, is not good. Ghana is bigger than any one political party, and I think that it's important for us to come to the point where we have that kind of maturity in our governance. And also the issue of um, national a national development agenda. Um, if you take an institution like the National Development Planning Commission, I believe that it must be uh, more visible. I'm not sure how many people even appreciate what they stand for. But I think that we need to have, uh, you know, the, come to the point. I think... Um, Prof mentioned the fact that uh, in his remarks that can we at this time talk about maybe Ghana in 60 years or whatever. Do we have that kind of uh, agenda that we all buy into irrespective of our you know, you know, uh, leanings. We need to have that focus. And I think that another thing government can do is to be able to borrow from uh, the law of three which means uh, in the business arena, we, we, we understand that there are three activities that will contribute, let's say, 90% of your productivity or your output. It's important for you know, our governments to be able to focus on a few things and do it well. Rather than trying to do so many things, you know, bits and pieces, and then we don't get anywhere. So that's my comment on, on the governance and, and, and national agenda. Uh, but I think Prof put it in a very nice so, way. So can I say that, can, can I assume that I've actually gotten ahead of time your second point? Correct. So let Correct. me try and articulate it in the way I have captured it. Because we're documenting this for, for posterity. So you want a less polarized nation able to draw or tap capacity across board. Absolutely. Based on competence rather than colors. Correct. All right. So we'll come back to you again. But I've gotten two prescriptions from you. Yeah. This being your second one and your first one being the ability to have a mental and attitudinal shift along the three areas that you described. Correct. Right. Let me come to you, Ken. Having laid this very elaborate foundation, if you wanted to piece it down in terms of prescriptions, what would be the, the, the building blocks of those prescriptions? Thank you, first of all. My ideal Ghana will be a nation. Um, I've talked about the aliens. The second thing is that it will have a trustworthy national identification system trustworthy national identification system that enables all persons in Ghana from age six and above to have a biometric multi-purpose identity card. I can explain that or unpack it later. My view, Ghana will also be a society in which people respect the fundamental... Please unpack this one just so we can, at least for everything you drop, we can work with it to a point of understanding it. You, you had the opportunity to work on this project, the national identification system, and you're seeing that if there's if there are five things that are critical to you in our nation-building yes. effort, one of them will be a credible national, national identification, identification system. system. And you mentioned everyone the age above six space. and above would have biometric data for multi-purpose um, usage, as yes. it were. Why, why six? Is there a reason? Yes, there's a re- the reason is that um, kids, uh, children's fingers, the fingerprints, are not well developed before age six. It is from age six that the fingerprints have begun <coughs> to take proper form. Um, this is a universal scientific fact. And so identification systems that are IFIS-based, that is based on automatic fingerprint identification systems, um, 
take it from six. So the child will be registered all right. There's birth and death registry that itself must be um, um, properly, you know, properly <laughs> resolved to do what it has to do. But by the, as soon as the, time, the child is age six, then they can uh, be hooked onto, be registered into a national identification system where you are using their um, fingerprints as right. well as facial features. But because facial features keep changing, the most reliable is the ifs, right? Um, but I, and then of course, as people grow and change, they will amend their records and all of that. Right. But the basic biometric uh, doesn't change. That doesn't right. change. Let, and let, I me, think, let me pick your mind on this. And while we are at it, um, some have suggested in other fora. That really, really forget about everything else. This is the beginning of any serious development if we want to call ourselves a serious country. Absolutely. Would, so. would, would you go to that extent of calling it the foundation or the beginning point of all our development? I think so. I will say so. I mean, I took on that challenge when I was given the opportunity because I believed it was fundamental to the nation's growth, its development in future. Um, its failure and the national identification system of Ghana has failed and it's one of the colossal miseries of this country that we could not manage to sustain a credible national identification system. We've toyed with it. I don't believe that it is the case that politicians have across board played politics with that. I think some politicians have played unnecessary politics with something that is definitely not political. But I'll reserve the reasons for that position for another time. For now, let me address the, the point that you make. Why do I say that this is a must-have um, and, and, and the basis for our development? It has multiple uses. I'm sure all of us know that. But it will facilitate the provision of several population-related data and reports for national development planning and program management. Provides a hand, handy instruments of personal identification and allows registered individuals to prove their age, their date of birth, their nationality, postal address, etc., on demand, just with one card, and helps eliminate the current practice. It will help eliminate the current practice of requiring individuals to produce birth certificates, baptismal certificates, other documentary evidence of their age when they are completing official forms or negotiating um, employment contracts. And I think, third, uh, such a card, if properly managed, would enable um, it to make it unnecessary for individuals to have to carry passports, driver's licenses, voter ID cards, and all the problems we know about voter ID cards and national insurance cards and all of that for purposes of routine personal identification. Right. Among others. Right. So, for your purposes, um, um, Ken, you've, you've recorded two prescriptions and you're saying that anyone who can make an impact transform this country must be articulate loyal have integrity be engaging be non-conformist and be sincere you call them aliens and the second thing you said is that talk about everything but we, we need to start with a credible trustworthy national identification system and everyone at age six and above must be captured for multi-purpose usage and you should us in elections right <laughs> and you showed us the the, the, the the number of advantages that can yes. be can be can accrue as a result of having the system let me come back to you um uh, Reverend uh, Tate, okay you a quick reaction that you go yes to. i just wanted to give an example for instance when you talk about a credit reference system yep. which is critical for the banking or the financial sector having a national id trustworthy 
would enable the providers to collate the information such that the banks or the financial intermediaries can, you know, do their references and make decisions that will not create, you know, MPLs in the system. That, you right. know, if you can stretch the effect of such things. So, without doubt, having a, a, a reliable national ID, I agree, is is the foundation right. of so, any serious discussion for uh, economic development. Right. So, for in some jurisdictions, if you mess up with one bank. Everybody gets to know immediately. I mean, exactly. Should, should, should you try exactly. to go anywhere else? Yeah. Veritable tool for law enforcement. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's, it's, it's right. right. Suspect identification. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let me come to you, um, Reverend to Give us your your next um, prescription for the ideal Ghana. Let me take one each from the the, the two of you, and then I'll take a break and, okay. and digest a bit of what you've you've shared so far. Okay. So what will be your third prescription? So what I have here, I, I'm looking at the educational sector or education. Um, I, I have put here, I'm saying that our education must not be degree-driven. Now, what I mean is that you shouldn't just be, you know, going through the system just to acquire uh, a degree. Um, the emphasis on uh, making our education very practical or application-driven, I believe, must take uh, center stage. You must depart from what are termed a memory-driven educational system. By memory-driven, you know, as people go through the system, it's all about, uh, as we say in local parlance, chew, you know, pour, pass, and then forget. You know, so it's not about memory. Rather than critical thinking, how to apply uh, knowledge to resolving uh, problems, you know. So, so th- it's about the quality of of education. We must have edu- an educational system that allows students to question, you know, ask why not. It, we have a system where you have to take, if you like, swallow whatever the teacher or lecturer says, um, and if you attempt to dissent or attempt to question. Uh, it can affect you in in in, in your your grade, and and I think that that is not good enough. So both of you have been, Ken still is actively the dean of the faculty of law at the Central University, and you've you've taught for quite a while. I, mean, I don't know if you still get time to teach, but no, not for, for no, years, not for some time. Yes, now. <laughs> yes, you you were in in academia. Yes, I mean, why it, it seems to it, it seems to be the case that both students and faculty or lecturers are guilty of agreeing to, for lack of a better word, be lazy. Would that, would that be an apt description? I Largely. I agree. I agree. I mean, I think maybe it's changing a bit now uh, in terms of the faculty angle. But, you know, some of us going through school, you find lecturers using the same material and not making it practical. You know, so you go through the, you go through the system and you don't have the push to do your own research uh you know, access information from other sources. You just stay with what uh, you're being given, knowing that if you reproduce it, you're getting your A and you're getting your uh, uh, upper first class. And I think that it's a, I think some lecturers these days, uh, we have younger, uh, at least I know UGBS, uh, they have a number of young lecturers who, who are doing quite well. So I think there's a change. I don't know about Central, but... Across board, uh, I think there's a, a hunger for a better a better quality, mm. not just from, from the lecturers. I mean, I can say this to the credit of the students as well. I think that people are beginning to realize that it doesn't pay to go down that route. So mm. 
even uh, on the student front, a lot of entrepreneurial initiatives have been have come up that show that we are looking beyond. But largely, there still remains a lot of work to be done. Ken, somehow education has featured in every one of the series that we have held. Yes. What What is the reason? Do you also have an, another educational description? Yes, I have. Please fast track it. Bring it forward. A different let's angle. Mine simply says it was my uh, my third. That um, is. Um, my ideal Ghana will be a society where no child drops out of school and no school fails a child by failing or by not encouraging and helping a child to develop and attain the highest possible potentials. No child drops out of school and no school fails a child. No child drops out of school and no school fails a child. And what let I mean, me let me give you before you even go on, let me throw this in so you can help us with some perspective. What I try to do is cross pollination of ideas because for instance, in the earlier interactions, um, somebody like Isankuma um, suggested that starting tomorrow we should come up with a state sponsored program for thirty years that would educate for free, at least at the basic level, everyone so that by the time we are 30 years from now, every child that would have been born starting tomorrow would have had some basic level that we can build upon to eradicate the serious um, challenges that we have. So that was one angle of the prescription. Then you juxtapose that against the thoughts of um, Dr. Emmanuel Akwiti who talked about developing a postgraduate solution because he says there are, there are tens of thousands, or if I may say hundreds of thousands of degree holders who are around who don't lack that value-added ability. So he was prescribing a postgraduate program that uses mentoring, coaching, and guidance to add value to the graduate level and leave not focus on the, um, the primary as the solution. Why do you stand on this? Uh, um, it's not either or, but right. let me quickly make one comment. Um, lazy teachers and same old materials. Um, at Central, we take this kind of issue very seriously, and I think most universities are doing that. We have to understand, though, that some things never change. And so if a teacher is teaching um, about the law of gravity, chances are the same good old notes would be used because there are fundamental principles of physics that don't change. But illustration, contextualization, conceptualization, those kinds of things would have to change to meet changing times and circumstances. And at least at my university, the, 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 there are funds available encouraging lecturers to conduct research, to publish, and to find new pedagogical techniques to impart and to impact the lives of their students. Students are also doing that. And we are trying to find ways of ensuring that we don't create a Google generation of students who are incapable of doing any independent cerebral research but are given to just type it on your handset and find what somebody has put down on, on, on Google and repackage and all of that. Plagiarism. But to come back to your question, my idea sinks more with ACE, it's commerce, but I don't think it's an either-or. We are only tackling the same problem from different ends. I believe that if we begin to pay kindergarten teachers well, pay nursery school teachers well, better than we are doing, take better care of primary school teachers, perhaps as better 
if not equal, better than if not equal to what we do for say principals of primary schools, will begin to create an excited generation of lower level workers. They are not lowly in mind. Their work is tedious. But because of how we have structured our educational system and the reward or compensation scheme that accompanies it, a lot of people look down upon and are not attracted to those kinds of jobs where the most fundamentals, the most basic things for childhood education are laid and and the development of our children. We should take that end of it seriously. Graduate that throughout the system and if we do it well with coaching and mentoring and all of that along the way, you will not create a generation of graduates or a cohort of graduates who lack the requisite tools for developing themselves for setting up businesses right. because all of this would have been necessary accompaniments of their educational process. Right. And I think it is because of the laxity of it, the lack of, complete lack of it, that Dr. Kwete, for example, is suggesting, let's do this in order to help those who are already out there and suffering. Right. So um, w- one talks about the immediacy of the issue and the need for a quick sol- uh, 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 solution that speaks to the current issue. And then somebody else looking at preparing for the future to avoid producing more of same. And and so um, yeah, you agree about, I agree with you about the, it not being an either or. And that was the view also of Professor Yanka, who uh, we had in the studio for the very last edition. He said it's a combination of the two will serve us well. I will come back to both of you very shortly and see whether we can throw in one more prescription each and then do some cross fertilization of ideas. But I owe it to our, our public to give you some thoughts about two upcoming programs that speak first to the younger generation to develop them well enough so that they would be more prepared than us when they get to um, when they get to start their careers. And another one is for the top level because as we have agreed right now, we need to prepare people at both the beginning and also at the top level. So let me start with teenpreneurship. And next week we'll do an extensive discussion about preparing our young people. I, I would I always give one prescription to close the, the show. And today I'll give my prescription in advance. My position, um, Ken and, and, and Daniel, um, is that if I had my own way, Three things will be introduced at the kindergarten level, and that is entrepreneurship, investment, and talent development. It will be in our curriculum from kindergarten, taught taught not in the same way we teach it to adults, but with dancing, music, playing. Introduce these three topics at kindergarten, not even primary, kindergarten level. I am persuaded and nothing will change my mind, that it will change this country completely. But so far, what Daniel Obama has been telling us in three prescriptions, somebody says you should do only one, because the thing, when you open the, when you open the thing, it creates trouble. But let me still tell you what I've learned from Daniel Obama. The first is a mental and attitudinal shift. One from consumption to investment, two from his job to my job, and three, our approach to work. Your second prescription, Daniel Obama, is a less polarized nation that draws resource across board. Your third, uh, and, and I like the, what you said about borrowing from the law of three. It's something we should do again, Reverend. We should do this discussion again, the law of three. Your third one is about education not being degree-driven, but being application-driven, not memory-driven, but critical thinking-driven to solve problems. Ken Atifa, you've been giving us 
three prescriptions. Apart from your very interested overarching picture of the new Ghana, you've given us three prescriptions. One, it should be governed by aliens, people who are articulate, loyal, have integrity, engaging, non-conformist, and sincere. And the second thing you've said about our nation is that we need a trustworthy national identification system that is multi-usage, multi-purpose, and captures everybody age six and above. The final one you've given us, Ken, is that we should have a society where no child drops out of school and no school fails a child by not helping them actualize their full potential. You're closing to us, Reverend. Well, I think that it's possible to have a new Ghana or an ideal Ghana. I think we need to alter our thinking, and I believe that such an exercise is good. I believe we must all buy into the fact that we have a stake. We cannot do it together and make Ghana the kind of uh, nation that we, we, we want. My, my last point has been leadership and not positional leadership because leadership can be at all levels. Right. It's about influence. And I think I want to see a Ghana where we are all exerting leadership at different levels, you know, because it's really about influence. And we need to move away from unless I'm in the position... I'm not a leader. I want to come back to tell us how each of us who has been a panelist can contribute to the extensive discussion we'll be having later on. But Ken, take us home. I would want to um, say that we we need to fashion a way of actualizing all the things that we have been saying, all the conversation we've been having. How do we achieve these things? If you take, for example, what uh, Reverend uh, Dr. Obama just said, how do we attain it? I want to register the importance of administrative justice. All around us, everywhere we go, we encounter delays, we encounter poor service, we encounter injustice, failure to serve. Take our criminal justice system or our justice system. People go to court and bailiffs are not serving, generally, not everyone. And all those delays and maladministration, they are a site of significant of unfairness. My ideal Ghana would be a country in which there is less of those because it is that which makes the abrutries that we like to run to the better societies that we also aspire to be. Let's improve the scale of administrative justice in Ghana. Thank you very much. Time flies when you are in good company. On behalf of Comfort, Matthew and Amos, my name is Albert Okran. God bless you. God bless you and God bless you. Good night. Thank you for listening to Springboard Zone, an inspirational podcast by Arbet and Comfort Okran. Like our Facebook and Twitter pages at Arbet and E. Okran and Comfort Okran A for free resources and information about our itinerary, conferences, and media broadcast. For speaking appointments, email albert.okran at icloud.com or SMS or WhatsApp us on plus 233 Zero, zero, zero. You may also subscribe to www.albertokran.com, amazon.com, or your favorite online bookstore for copies of our inspirational books and audiovisual materials. Until we come your way again, always remember, you are blessed indeed. Oh, 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 oh,